For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. Here in Esther chapters 9 and 10, God turns the tables on the enemies of the Jews and gives them the upper hand. Let's join Pastor Jim now with a message entitled, The Tables Are Turned. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody to the sanctuary for this evening's Bible study. And if you have your Bible, go ahead and bust it open to Esther chapter 9 and tonight we will finish the book. And while you guys are doing that, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much this evening for the opportunity to sit at your feet and to hear your word. We know that your word is spirit, your word is life, and your word is is powerful. It's able to change us from the inside out and to make us more like your son, Jesus, the most wonderful being in the universe. And so I pray that you would take your Holy Spirit anointed word and my simple message and make a difference in our lives tonight, because it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 Now, you guys have all heard the saying, uh, the tables have turned. It's an idiom used to denote a reversal of fortunes. It's said to have come from back in the day when folks played board games. You know, so you're sitting at a table and you're playing someone a game of chess. And unfortunately, you're getting whooped. Your opponent has the upper hand. And so you're, th- you're sitting there and you're dreaming of a miracle. You're hoping for a comeback. You're wishing that the tables were turned and that you were on the other side, that you had the upper hand. Now, I believe that expression, which is found in our text tonight, paints a clear picture as to how God has operated throughout history on behalf of his people. For example, the Jews, um, after spending 2,000 years in exile, without a homeland of their own and being looked down upon by the nations of the world, and after suffering greatly through World War II, they were finally recognized as an autonomous nation, the nation of Israel. And no sooner had the Brits moved out, a host of Arab nations moved in and declared war on this infant nation. The odds were against them. They were outnumbered. They were ill-equipped, militarily speaking, and yet they came out victorious. It was an incredible reversal of fortunes an incredible turning of the tables that really has happened time and time again to the Jewish people, including in our story tonight, where the people of God will come together to rise up against the enemies, against the evil plan of Haman, his evil plot, his evil scheme, and they will come out victorious against all odds, teaching us this powerful, powerful lesson that if God is for us, then who can be against us? So Esther chapter nine, Esther chapter nine, and we're gonna start by reading verses one through 16. 
There we go. I'm turning there myself. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, Azpatha, Poratha, Adalia, Aridatha, Parmashta, Arisiah, Aridaya, and Vaisatha. Bam! Come on. That was amazing. I don't know if I pronounced them right, but I did my best. The enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder because it wasn't about the money for them. The number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. And the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on gallows. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they hanged the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa three hundred men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder." because it wasn't about the money for them. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So let's pause right there, and let's talk about this great reversal All right, this great reversal. Now, we remember how things have been unfolding quite dramatically throughout our study in the book of Esther. An enemy of the people of God has arisen. He goes by the name of Haman, a man obsessed with being honored, obsessed with being acknowledged, and obsessed with being worshiped. And a flame of hatred was ignited in this man's heart when one person, Mordecai, refused to bow to him. And so he hatches this plan and he plots this evil scheme which will bring death not only to Mordecai, but also to all of the people of God, the complete eradication of the Jewish people. And now because of his high position in the Persian government, he's able to secure an irreversible decree from the king 
which will gratify his wicked heart and bring death to every single Jew in the empire. Now, in the midst of all of this, God has been working invisibly behind the scenes, and it's been pretty cool to see. So we have Esther, who is a Jew, and she has become queen of the empire. And then we have Mordecai, who is also a Jew. He uncovers a conspiracy, an assassination attempt on the king, and he is responsible for saving the king's life. And so him and the king are now BFFs. And then we saw Haman get executed and a counter decree was issued. And the Jews can now defend themselves. So we've been seeing the tables beginning to turn. And now it's been one year since Haman cast the lot and D-Day has arrived here in chapter nine. And the question is this, will the people of God survive? Will the people of God make it through? Will the people of God be okay? I mean, these are probably questions that the children were asking their parents. Dad, are we gonna be okay? Mom, what's gonna happen to us? I mean, the decree was against every single Jew, man, woman, and child. And so these kids were, were hearing people talk at school. They were hearing people talk on the playground. The parents were hearing people talk when they went to work, when they went out on the town. The people were talking. So just put yourself in their shoes. Imagine the emotions that these people were feeling as D-Day was coming upon them. Imagine the fear Imagine the anxiety, imagine the uncertainty as they thought about their family and what was gonna to happen to their family, as they thought about their friends, as they thought about their future. I mean, our text tells us that the enemies hoped to overpower them. Why? Because the enemies hated the Jews. And so that tells me that there clearly wasn't just one enemy of the Jews. Rather, the anti-Semitic sentiment of Haman had spread like a virus throughout the empire and tens of thousands of people were infected. In other words, the Jews were in trouble. The empire was infected with this anti-Semitic atmosphere and vibe, and the Jews were a little bit scared. But check out what verse one has to say. I love this verse. It says, but now... The tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand. It's a great reversal of, of fortunes, undoubtedly wrought by the hand of Almighty God. I love this. I love this, that God can turn the tables, that God can reverse our fortunes in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And this is the way that the Lord always works in our lives. Always, always, always. He has that kind of power. He has that kind of ability. No matter what the enemy has planned against you, no matter what the enemy has planned against me or what he has planned against us, God will always turn the table on the enemy and give us the upper hand because we are his 
people. He's able to take us from fear to faith. He's able to take us from a situation of death to life. He's able to take us from hell to heaven. That's the power of our God. Romans chapter eight and verse 28 says, for in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. He's able to change everything. He's able to reverse our fortunes. Whatever we're going through tonight, whatever evil has come upon us, God is going to turn the tables and turn it for our good. I heard a testimony of a young Muslim man. He was a Muslim and he was speaking about his family. His dad was a Muslim, but his mother was a Christian. But, but the son was a Muslim because his dad was a Muslim. Because whatever the dad is, the kids have to follow that religion. And you can just imagine how mom must have felt. I mean, the torment that the enemy was bringing on her soul and in her thoughts as she considered you know, the fate of her family, her husband, who she loves and who she has devoted her life to, doesn't know the Lord. And man, if he was to die tonight, he's gonna perish. And her son, her, her precious son, following in the footsteps of dad, going through that broad gate and walking down that wide road, which leads to destruction. I mean, man, the fear, the anxiety, the uncertainty that this mother felt. And then to top it all off, the dad gets really sick and his life is in jeopardy. And so now everything is magnified. Now everything, I mean, all of those emotions are just increased exponentially overwhelmed, but then God intervenes. God turns the tables. The enemy's plans against her and the enemy's plans against her family and dad ends up becoming a Christian through all of this. And then the son ends up becoming a Christian through all of this. You see, God is able to turn the tables on the enemy's plan against us. Romans chapter 15 and verse four tells us that the reason that these Old Testament passages are recorded for you and me is so that when we read them, we can be encouraged. And so that when we read them, we can be instilled with hope today. You see, this passage tells us that God is the master of great reversals, that God is the great table turner in our lives. You see, each and every single one of us in this room has a spiritual enemy. And he has a flame of hatred that is burning in his heart towards each one of us. And that's all because of the Son of God who loves us because the Son of God refused to bow to our enemy in eternity past. And because the Son of God refused to bow to our enemy in the wilderness. And because of that... He turns his hatred towards us, the object of God's love. You see, our enemy is constantly plotting and planning evil schemes against us. Ephesians chapter six speaks all about it. He wants to ruin our families, ruin our friendships, ruin our future, ruin our faith, and ruin our fellowship with God and with one another. That's what the enemy is up to in our lives. Maybe even tonight, it feels like D-Day in your life. 
and the enemy's plan is coming down upon your head. You're filled with fear. You're filled with anxiety. You're filled with uncertainty. You feel like the enemy has the upper hand in your life and you feel like you're just ready to fold. You're ready to just give up. This passage is here to give you hope, that you can take hope tonight because present here with us, though he is invisible, is the great reverser of fortunes, the great table turner, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is here tonight and he's ready to reverse your fortunes, to turn the enemy's plan on his own head. And he is excellent at doing that in our lives. Jesus is excellent at turning things around for us. Imagine yourself, you're being chased by an army that wants to kill you. You're surrounded by mountains on one side and a body of water on the other. There's nowhere to go. That was the situation for the children of Israel as they were led out of Egypt and they were heading towards the promised land. The enemy clearly had the upper hand. There was nothing they could do. Filled with fear, filled with anxiety, filled with uncertainty. They don't really know what's gonna happen. They think they're gonna die, but then boom, the Lord shows up, reverses their fortunes, turns the tables. They're set free and the enemies of God perish. I think about the disciples. These guys, they spent three years with Jesus, following him around listening to his teaching, watching his miracles. And they were thinking, we're gonna rule and reign with this Messiah on this earth. Israel's gonna be exalted. It's gonna be glorious. But then their hopes are dashed as they see their Messiah, Jesus, hanging on a cross. And they don't understand yet. They don't understand why he has to die. And so everything that they've been believing and hoping in is dying right before their eyes. The enemy has the upper hand in their mind. And after Jesus dies, the guys, they go and they hide in an upper room thinking it's all over. Their dreams are gone. They've been killed. But then in a moment, in the blinking of an eye, on that Sunday evening, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great reverser of fortunes, the great table turner walks into the room and changes everything for those guys. He turned those tables for them. He reversed their fortunes. And tonight, ladies and gentlemen, I believe that he can do that for you. With whatever your situation is, each and every single one of us have a unique situation that we're going through that is troubling us, that is causing depression and anxiety and an uncertainty and fear. And the enemy is using that to really hammer, hammer us down and beat us down. Well, tonight, Jesus wants to change that. Jesus wants to turn the tables for you. You need to know that he's sovereign over your life. He's sovereign over the enemy. He created the enemy. And he always uses the enemy's plan for our good. And so take hope tonight. Take hope that the Lord Jesus Christ is working in our midst. Now, I love how this story uh, unfolds. I mean, all of the employees of the empire, the, the, uh, the, prince, the princes, the, the governors, the administrators, 
Uh, they're now on the side of the Jews, okay? They're now pro-Jew. And that's because they understand something. They understand that the king's uh, right-hand man, Mordecai, they understand that he's a Jew and that him and the emperor are BFFs because he saved the emperor's life. And so to come against the Jews now is to come against the emperor himself. And that would be a bad idea. And that our verse three tells us that the fear of Mordecai had seized them. It makes sense. You mess with the Jews, you're messing with Mordecai, who is the emperor's BFF. Now, what a testimony to Mordecai, right? What a testimony to the way this man conducted himself and to the way this man lived his life. He lived in such a way that the entire Jewish nation was saved, that lives were saved, that lives were transformed, that people who were formerly against God's people were now on the side of God's people. That's incredible. That's the kind of testimony that I wanna have as a Christian, that I live my life in such a way that souls are saved, that people who are currently opposed to God will cross over and become friends of God and friends of God's people. I was thinking about a young man, goes to our young adults group. His name is Eric. He's not here tonight, but what a solid young man, a, a solid Christian, a hardworking young man, living, sold out for Jesus Christ. He's a landscaper and, and his reputation at his work, it, it precedes him. And at his work, he's, he's testifying of the Lord, telling about Jesus Christ. And he was able to bring two of those guys to our church, Brian and Aaron. One of them, a non-believer, ends up getting saved here at the fellowship, giving his life to Jesus, all because of the testimony of this young man. I wanna be like Mordecai, living my life in such a way that lives are saved, that souls are saved. So the Jewish people, they went, it's pretty cool. They went from having no firepower, no outside help to having the favor of the emperor and his entire administration. That's incredible. God completely turned the tables for the Jewish people. Verses six and seven tell us that 500 enemies of the Jews plus the 10 sons of Haman were killed. And then after that, we see Esther getting an extension from the king uh, for the Jewish campaign to continue to defend themselves and also for uh, the display of Haman's deceased sons in public. Now, you're probably wondering what's up with that. Why would that be necessary for them to continue to need to defend themselves and for Haman's sons to be publicly displayed? Well, first of all, we need to remember that there's still 75,000 sworn enemies of the Jews throughout the empire. We find that out later on because 75,000 people are killed. So still 75,000 people issuing death threats to the Jews. And secondly, Haman's sons were the ringleaders. These guys were bloodthirsty men preaching death to the Jews and spreading that propaganda throughout the empire. And by so doing, they were making themselves public 
enemies of the emperor and public enemies of his kingdom, especially in light of his second decree, which was favorable to the Jewish people. And so they displayed them publicly as a powerful message to those who were still alive, essentially saying, don't follow in their footsteps. We don't want this to happen to you. A commentator on this uh, particular verse says, the exposure of these corpses of Haman's sons would be a powerful signal to those who continued to oppose the Jews, pointing to the king's support for them. So the tables were turned. The tables were turned by the invisible hand of Almighty God and by two actions of the people. Actions that will give, uh, that will help us in our battle against the enemy as well. You see, we have a part to play. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians chapter two and verse, I don't know, 12 or 13, somewhere in there. So God has a part to play in turning the tables for us, and we have a part to play. Verses 15 and 16 tell us that the people came together and that the people assembled together. So the first action that brought the people of God victory against the enemy was them coming together, was them assembling together. What do you think was happening when the people of God were assembling together? What do you think was happening when they were coming together? They were encouraging one another for the battle. They were inspiring one another to fight hard. They were instructing one another on how to use the sword, on how to defend themselves. That's exactly what was happening when they were assembling together. So that's the first action that they took that brought them victory. And the second action that they took was that they obeyed the decree and the word of the king to defend themselves. They obeyed the word of the king to defend themselves. If they wouldn't have done that, they wouldn't have survived. If they wouldn't have assembled, and if they wouldn't have obeyed the word of the king, they would not have survived. Now, if you want victory over the enemy in your life, if you want victory over Satan and his demonic forces and over sin in your life, then you need to follow those two actions. You need to assemble together with the people of God on a regular basis, AKA go to church, and you need to obey the word of the great king. You need to obey the word of God. When we come to church on a regular basis, when it's a number one priority in our life above everything else. I am going to be at church. I'm going to be there every Sunday. And if I can be there every Wednesday, I am there. Things happen. You see, it's at church where we're instructed in the word of God. It's at church where we're inspired by other Christians to live holy, to live righteously, to live blamelessly. It's at church where people pray over us and the power of God is unleashed in our lives. You see, assembling together helps us against the enemy's plan to draw us away from the Lord. And then, of course, obeying the word of the king, being a person of the word of God. You know, the word in Ephesians chapter six 
is described as the sword of the spirit. We need to get into the word, learn the word, and then obey it, use it in our lives to defeat the enemy's evil schemes against us, to bring us down and to bring us away from our great king. So let's finish up the book, verses 17 all the way to the end. So I'm gonna take a big, deep breath, and I'm gonna read. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, And on the 14th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th. And then on the 15th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why the rural Jews, those living in villages, observed the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day of giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pur, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, these days were called Purim, from the word pure, Because of everything written in this letter, and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews nor should the memory of them die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. In chapter 10, King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all of his acts of power and might, together with a full, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king had raised him, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all of the Jews. 
Amen. The book of Esther is complete. We talked about the great reversal. Now let's finish up by talking about this great celebration. Now, incredible victories are always a cause for great celebrations. You know, the 4th of July is always a wonderful time around here. I went with the young adults group and celebrated out in Sebastopol on July 3rd. And then on July 4th, I went with my family down here to, Santa Rosa, to the Santa Rosa Fairgrounds, and it was awesome. The whole place was packed out, people everywhere, food vendors. They had the Wonder Bread 5 band playing. And so my daughter and I, Evangeline, she's seven, I put her up on my shoulders, and we got in the middle of the crowd, and we're dancing around, having a good old time. And then the fireworks, man, lighting up the sky, the people, it was, it was awesome, an awesome celebration, commemorating a great victory, our independence from Great Britain. Think about the World Series, you know, we've had three World Series around here in the past, I don't know, what is it, six years, five years, incredible. You know, that moment the last pitch is thrown, and it's strike three, or it's out number three, what happens? All of the players, they burst into celebration and they run out on the field going crazy. If you're watching from home and you're watching on television, sometimes they flash to the locker room and you can't even see anything because there's like, you know, bubbly spraying everywhere and people are just going crazy. Their hair's all disheveled. It's madness. I've been outside of uh, the stadium down in San Francisco, AT&T Park, after one of those World Series victories. We were out there sharing the gospel and the people are just going wild. People are going crazy, chanting the name of the giants. We're just talking about a sporting event and people are going wild in celebration. But the Jews, man, these people, they had a new life and their, their future was secure. And so they're gonna have a huge celebration. And they don't wanna just celebrate for a day or two. They want this celebration to go on forever. And so Mordecai establishes this annual celebration to commemorate their salvation, and it's called the Feast of Purim. Pure means lot, P-U-R means lot, and then the I-M makes it plural. So the Feast of Lots, okay? So it's a reminder uh, to the Jews of the lot that Haman cast for their destruction. Now these folks, they still celebrate this today. It typically happens in the month of March. I think this year it was March 15th or March 16th. I, look it up. I looked it up, but I didn't write it down. Um, but basically, there's food, there's joy, there's gift giving. Uh, they come together at the synagogue. They read through the story of Esther once again and Haman's evil plot. Sometimes they, they act it out. Sometimes they have a play the kids dress up in costumes, kind of like Halloween, and they are reminded of God's faithfulness. It's a wonderful celebration because they had a great reversal of fortunes. It was a great victory for them. Now, by the way, this was not a God-commanded holiday. This was not a God-ordained holiday. Nowhere in the Old Testament does God command them to instate this new holy day, this new festival, this new celebration. Those all happen uh, in the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Exodus and so on and so forth. But I believe that God is totally cool with this. I don't think God's gonna say, what are you guys thinking? Getting together and having a meal and celebrating the victory that I gave you. 
What are you guys doing? Getting together, celebrating, uh, still being alive and having a future and having a hope and having a family. What in the world are you guys thinking? I don't think so. I think God is totally cool with that. Now, you know, you and I have some spiritual holidays uh, that some of us uh, observe commemorating what God has done to save us. I think God is totally cool with these holidays. They involve food, they involve celebration, they involve joy, they involve gift giving. I think of Christmas, the day that I celebrate the birth of the one who's brought about the new birth in my life, who's brought about the second birth in my life, who has saved me from the second death. That's not in the scripture. God doesn't tell me to celebrate his birth, but I think God's cool with that. I don't think he has any problem with that. I can't imagine the Lord telling me when I stand before his throne, Jim, what were you thinking? Christmas? I wasn't born on December 25th. Let's start there. Come on. You were celebrating the birth of my son who came to the world to save you? I don't think so. I don't think I'm going to hear that from God when I stand before him. So you better believe on Christmas I'm a happy camper, that there's joy in my house, that there's celebration, that there's some good food that I don't make but that my lovely wife makes. And you better believe that those kids are going to get some gifts. They're going to get some gifts because I've been given a great gift. And so, man, I want to be a blessing to my kids. I think of Easter, the day I celebrate the resurrection of the one who's going to raise me from the dead. I think God's totally cool with that. It's not ordained in the New Testament that we have to celebrate Easter, that we have to celebrate Resurrection Day. But I can't imagine God getting mad at me that we, I set apart one day of the year to really focus on, even though every day I'm thinking about his resurrection, but one specific day, one special day to really acknowledge, man, Lord, this is the day that you rose from the dead. And this is evidence that I'm going to be raised from the dead. I think that's pretty cool. I think it's exciting. You know, I've heard people and I've read articles uh, that say, you know, these, you know, holidays that Christians observe, they're not God-ordained and that they originated in pagan festivals. Well, guess what? Uh, The folks say the exact same thing about the festival of Purim today. They say that this is not a God-ordained festival and that it originated from pagan festivals, okay? People are saying the exact same things today. I like Romans chapter 14 and verse six. It kind of it squashes the whole thing for me. It essentially says that there's nothing wrong with having a special day for the Lord. If you wanna have a special day for the Lord, a day like Christmas where you celebrate his birth, you can have that. It's totally cool with God. If you don't wanna celebrate Christmas, it's totally cool with God. It's between you and him. If you wanna celebrate Easter, he's totally cool with it. If you don't wanna celebrate Easter, he's totally cool with it. Romans chapter 14 and verse six. Now, the book concludes by giving honor to the guy who played a major role in their salvation, Mordecai. And so I think we should conclude our night by giving the honor to the one who's not only saved our lives, for some of us, myself included, but also the one who saved our souls, none other than Jesus Christ. 
the one who saved us from death, who saved us from sin, who saved us from the devil, and who has saved us from hell through the blood that he shed on the cross and through his resurrection three days later. And so let's have the worship team come on up. And I just wanna encourage you guys tonight in this closing song to worship the Lord with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your being, to give him the honor that he deserves, to give him the glory that he deserves. Because apart from him, we don't have this. Apart from him, we don't have heaven. We don't have the Holy Spirit. We don't have new life. We have nothing. And so he is worthy tonight. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and mercy. We're so thankful that you're the one who can reverse our fortunes. You're the one who can turn the tables and give us the upper hand. You're the one who instructs us on how to wage war against our enemy. You tell us of the importance of assembling together and the importance of obeying your word. And so tonight we want to end our night by giving honor and glory to the one who has saved our souls, Jesus Christ. In your name, amen. All right, let's stand and worship together. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.